Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Abbas Malani, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Septuagenarian Men, Young Women, and the Social Media in Iran, Prospects for Democracy in a Despotic Iran. And it was recorded on April 24th, 2018. Good morning. Uh, one of the things you didn't know about uh, the Hoover Institution is that they could be ironic. So they're going to deliver some good news about Iran. Of all the places in the world, the least and last place that you might think that there's a prospect for democracy, it would be uh, Iran. Uh, there is a couple of things uh, that in the very generous introduction, uh, our director forgot to mention. Uh, one is that uh, according to the Iranian regime, uh, I am the top CIA uh, agent on Iran. And you folks, I'm not serious, all of this, I'm not joking, this is all in an indictment. That you folks who rule the world have brought me to Stanford and Hoover so that I can conspire with Mike McFall and Larry Diamond to overthrow the Iranian regime. We have tried to develop a plan for that, but that's not why we came here. Uh, they got all the details right except one. They didn't get the name of the institution right. They kept referring to this as the Hoover Institution. Uh, the other uh, small detail, as if you followed the places I have taught and the uh, years I have taught, there was a year missing that I seemed to be unemployed, 1977-78. I was, in fact, unemployed. I was in prison under the Shah. Uh, very good form of employment. You employ time very efficiently. Uh, but what made that year very interesting is that uh, I spent six months of it with the future leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Virtually everybody who was anybody uh, was in that prison at the time. Uh, Rafsanjani, who just died, Mahdavi Kani, uh, Talavani, all of these. So I, I learned about these septuagenarian men. Many of them are still the rulers of Iran. At that time, they were old men. So we can imagine what the reality is. So. Um, Iran is um, a land of uh, many, many paradoxes. Uh, it has arguably the most despotic constitution anywhere, in the sense that it displaces a disproportionate amount of power and a disproportionate amount of wealth in the hands of one man, the supreme leader, who claims to have absolutely no need for popular support, or vote. He is elected by a small band of clergy, all men, 86 of them. The average age, I think, is above 75. Uh, and he is only responsible to Allah and no one else. Allah has chosen him. Allah can unchoose him. Uh, aside from being the commander-in-chief, aside from appointing the head of the judiciary, aside from appointing the head of the Iranian monopoly of radio and television, 
aside from appointing the commander of the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, he controls conservatively $90 billion a year that he does not give an account to anyone. Much of the money that, for example, Iran spends off the records in Syria and Lebanon, in Iraq and Afghanistan, is using that fund. It is very difficult to get an exact estimate of how much that money is. Reuters has just estimated it to be $90 billion. That, to give you some context, is even more money than Putin privately controls. So he has an enormous amount of power, is unimpeachable. God has chosen him, and God can take him away. There is several years now where there is talk that God might soon take him away uh, because he's reported to have cancer. He does look frail of health. He does uh, talk more grimly about life, virtually with every passing day. But God, in his wisdom, has chosen not to yet take him away. So he is here, but his health provides a context to the crisis that Iran faces today. And I'm going to talk about aspects of this crisis. Another aspect of Iran's very unusual paradox is that it has arguably the most anti-American leadership. Khamenei is arguably, in my view, the most systematically, cogently argued anti-American leader in the Middle East. The rest of them might have rhetorical uh, opposition, but I have read his writing long before he became a supreme leader. Long before he became a supreme leader, he had a decided but determined anti-Americanism. Again, to give you a global context, he, although he is a Shiite, translated four of the books of Sayyid Qut, the grandfather of Islamic radicalism, the theorist of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And when you read those books, as I have read them, you realize how systematic his anti-Americanism is. Because again, if you remember, if you have heard the name of Sayyid Aghot, he's an Egyptian teacher who comes to the United States. He's sent in by the Egyptian government in the hope of moderating his views. He comes here, he stays here two years, goes back more determined anti-American than ever before, thinks this is the land of the devil, men and women dance in public, it's all kinds of weird things are happening here. And he becomes a, literally, one person calls him the grandfather of Islamic terrorism. Uh, so long before coming to power, Khamenei had developed this rather elaborate anti-American theory. So. Although he is the uh, leader, the supreme leader with this disproportionate power, Iran is arguably, uh, we have empirical evidence, we have anecdotal evidence of all the countries, Muslim countries in the Middle East, the one that is most pro-American. The people are pro-American, the government is profoundly anti-American. But the government is also paradoxically riven between two groups. A group led by Khamenei, who wants to take Iran towards a much more clear alliance with Russia and China, and a group within the regime who thinks that's a bad idea. One of the things you hear very little about 
And because we're at Hoover, because Hoover has been very keen on understanding what Soviet Union has done in the world and wanted to do in the world and what Russia wants to do in the world, one of the things you hear very little about, but you should pay more attention to, is what Russia is doing in Iran, in Syria, in the Middle East, and what China is doing in that region. If the US abandons that region, have no doubt, the vacuum will be filled by China and by Russia. In Iran, I think Russia and China in that order. And the fact that the regime is in such a profound crisis gives these two powers, particularly Russia, a very good opportunity to uh, fill in. Let me give you two very interesting examples that I think you might not have even heard about. Just last week, the Iranian government announced that uh, very soon they're going to try to make Russian, instead of English, the second language taught in Iranian schools. Three weeks before that, Russian uh, planes were granted access to an Iranian base to be used in order to fly missions against Syria, something Russia has had only once, that is the ability to use an Iranian military base, and that was a few months ago. And it caused such an uproar, the regime backed down, but it now has uh, gone back to that policy. So Russia is finding a serious foothold in Iran, and China is finding a very serious foothold in Iran. And as the crisis deepens in Iran, and I'll tell you why the crisis will deepen, uh, the possibilities of these two filling in the vacuum uh, is uh, profound. And if that happens, I can tell you that this will be, in my view, one of the most important strategic realignments in the region in the last 150 years. Because if Russia and China have access to Iran, have dominance in the Persian Gulf, uh, the, the rest of the Middle East is going to look very different than it does today. Uh, the other paradox that I'm going to spend a lot more time on is that uh, the Iranian regime is uh, profoundly misogynous. If you ever look at any picture of the Iranian leadership, you see a room full of uh, septuagenarian men sometimes nanogenarian men, that's over 90, which is good. I don't mind people living to be 90, but people living over 90 shouldn't be the sole people who decide the fate of a country that is 70% under the age of 35. Uh, so it, it is a misogynist septuagenarian male elite that has had ritual control in Iran for 39 years. They have literally tried everything they can to push Iranian women back into what they think the model of womanhood is, which is motherhood, having 14 children, uh, being subservient to their uh, husbands, and uh, creating good soldiers for uh, Allah. There are many, many laws that are surprisingly uh, misogynist against women. Laws about marriage, laws about divorce, 
women have no right to file for a divorce unless the husband is a certified lunatic. And even that is very difficult to get because the certified lunatic sits as a judge and thinks what the husband is doing is normal. I, I'm not joking. Uh, I, I just had a conversation with a student who uh, uh, is not one of our students, uh, who told me her life story. And I, I kid you not, I exaggerate not, I wept as she told me this story. I, I felt ashamed that something like this is happening. She was beaten regularly by her husband. And this lunatic, who is Islamic judge, kept saying, well, you're not performing your uh, conjugal duties. I said, what do you mean not performing my conjugal duties? So uh, I can give you a lot of horror stories, but I'm here to give you optimistic stories in the morning. So uh, in spite of all of these laws, in spite of the effort of the regime to curtail the advancement of women, in spite of actual quotas on women getting into universities, in spite of the fact that there are about 60 different programs at the universities where women are barred from, because supposedly it is not a womanly job. For example, mining engineering, women can't attend because going to a mine is not a feminine thing. I don't know why, but they thus have decreed it. Uh, nevertheless, in spite of these laws, in spite of the systematic effort, at every level, Germanian women have fought this regime and have gained. 64% of graduating class last year at the universities were women. And everyone will tell you that if there weren't negative quotas on women, the numbers would be much, much higher. Last year, for the first time in the history of Iran, there were more women published writers, authors, than there were men. There are now, there is now the head of one of Iran's biggest uh, governmental companies after the oil and petrochemical is the Iranian National uh, Airline. The head of that organization is now a woman. The regime has tried everything not to appoint women to these police uh, positions. But women have worked very, very hard. And one of the places they have worked the hardest, one of the places where they have, I think, organized movement of civil disobedience that is, in my view, on par with the civil disobedience movement that was organized in this country by Martin Luther King, for example, is on the question of how they should appear in public. This is the question of hijab, what in Arabic or Persian is called hijab. Islam requires women to cover their hair. If you talk to different clerics, they have different interpretations of how much it should be covered, what should be covered, where it should be covered. But the Islamic Republic tried to force veil on women. Women were forcefully unveiled, to give you a historic context, in 1936 by a modernizing king called Reza Shah. Reza Shah ruled Iran from 1925 to 1941. He was in the mold of an Ataturk. He was really a remarkable reformist. And they just found a body outside Tehran that they think is his and has created a remarkable uproar in the country. 
the regime tried to revert back by forcing women to wear a veil. You cannot appear in public if you're a woman without covering your hair. That became the law of the land. From day one, women began to fight this. And today, it has become a movement of remarkable power. And they are essentially forcing women, uh, the, the regime, to back down. They're forcing uh, the regime to reconsider its forced veiling. Many of the clerics in the regime are saying, we have lost this battle, we must recognize that we can't force this on women, and we must educate them. Uh, but the significance of the women's movement is not just about the veil. It is about breaking the authority of a despotic regime. Fear is an absolute essential ingredient of authoritarianism. No authoritarian regime survives if fear dissipates. Authoritarianism suddenly collapses. You have seen it many times. Why? Why does an absolute authoritarian regime suddenly disappear? A key element is there is a moment, an ineffable moment, where fear is lost. When fear is lost, authoritarianism is dead. Uh, they asked Hemingway, how did you go broke? He said, first gradually and then suddenly. That's how authoritarianism falls. First gradually and then suddenly. Women have been fighting this gradual dissipation, this gradual challenge to the authoritarianism of the regime. If you can beat them in the streets the way women have, maybe we can beat them in other places. This challenge to authoritarianism is coming again in Iran at a very remarkable historic moment. Three aspects of this uh, specific challenge that makes it very, very serious for the regime and makes its survival doubtful. One I already referred to, the question of succession. Khamenei has amassed an enormous amount of power. His office, the despotic nature of his office is reviled by the people. They want to change it. The conservatives want to find someone else to put in his place. There is absolutely no consensus candidate. And in this uh, chaos, the Revolutionary Guards, who control something like 40% of the economy every day in the last two, three months, are virtually threatening a coup d'etat. So Iran might well have a sudden tumult, and the IRGC might take over, but for reasons that I can explain a little bit, I, I think that's a short-term uh, non-solution to a strategic problem. The second aspect of this is that we live in an age of a remarkable revolution, comparable only to the revolution brought by the printing press in the Renaissance. The printing press changed the fabric of the world, made modernity possible, made Renaissance possible, made the Protestant revolution possible. We are now in a revolution by the internet. Iran is a remarkably internet-savvy 
society. Let me give you a few statistics. Iran's population is 85 million. There are 110 million SIM cards, that is cards for smartphones, active in Iran. So more than one and three for every Iranian. Iran has 58 million registered internet users. 58 million out of a population of 85. Iran has 117.2 million Facebook users. And Facebook is illegal in Iran. It's literally banned in Iran. Iran has a million and a half Twitter users. And Twitter is illegal in Iran. Every government official has a Facebook account, although Facebook is banned. Every government official has a Twitter account, although Twitter is banned. There are 40 million Telegram users in Iran. 40 million. The government is trying to shut down Telegram. They're trying to filter it. And they're faced with the problem that, first of all, there are 40 million people Second, there are about a million and a half, at least, million and a half Iranians who make their livelihood on Telegram, sell their commodities on Telegram. But it's not just uh, commodities that are sold on the internet. There are also ideas. We can get ideas into Iran and people listen to it and watch it. Uh, I, I can give you statistics uh, I have a, a Twitter account that I began about six months ago. Messages that I send now have something between 30 to 100,000 readers on a Twitter account. These are in Persian. So it is a society in tumult, and they are extremely savvy in bypassing the regime's censorship effort. The regime is very much trying to recreate the Chinese model create a domestic uh, internet and shut down everything else. People are already trying to find ways to bypass it. I hope Silicon Valley, I hope the Trump administration uh, is already also thinking about helping the Iranians simply access information. We don't need to send military in Iran. We don't need to send troops to Iran. Allow Iranians to have access to internet. Allow Iranians to have uh, unfettered access to internet, and I think they will take care of this regime. Because uh, I, I need to give some time for a question and answer, I'll talk for another three minutes to give you uh, what is arguably the most serious aspect of this crisis, but that's not the subject of my talk, that's really another talk, and that's the economic crisis. The regime is facing its most serious economic crisis of the last 38 years. To give you one example, the financial system, the bloodline of the economy, is on the verge of collapse. There are 33 banks, 28 of them are de facto bankrupt because they have made bad loans that they cannot recoup because they're making 25 to 35% interest rates. 
If you want to invest in Iran right now, there are places that will give you 40% interest. But if you ever decide to do that, make, be sure you will, you will not be able to contribute to Hoover in a couple of years because that money is not recoupable. Because the rate of inflation and the insecurity that comes with it. But what bank can give 30% interest and survive? Virtually all the banks are Ponzi schemes. The water situation is as bad as the financial situation. The Iranian water reserve has been depleted to the tune of 70% of historically reserved water. Some cities are already, as we speak, in war with one another over water. The future of energy is bleak for the regime, uh, the future of the water resources, and the population. The statistics on all of these are very readily available. Uh, I can uh, direct you to a couple of sites where we have accumulated some of the statistics, and they're shocking. So the accumulation of these makes it, I think, possible to think that one scenario, and the only scenario that in the midterm will help solve Iran's problem, is a more democratic Iran. So uh, we now have, I think, 10 minutes left for questions. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.